Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. This is uh, episode two in what may only be a two-part series on uh, uh, supporting um, refugees uh, from the war in Ukraine. The first episode we had uh, Sophie Genovich on and kind of talked more about sort of really broader, really kind of generalized stuff that wasn't really sort of specific to kind of what you would do with these individuals. That episode was really more about helping Sophie get some folks to help her out uh, with coordinating efforts um, sort of on a, on a more uh, broader perspective. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about this episode because we're going to be talking more about kind of what can we do sort of, you know, once these refugees, you know, ar- arrive in sort of arrive in your country, uh, where do we start? What, where, where, where do we go? And uh, it's, it's my privilege to have um, uh, an old classmate of mine, Odana Popovich, um, who's a, a BCBA uh, based, based out here on the West Coast where I'm at. And uh, I'll, I'll let her tell you her story, but uh, I'm really looking forward to kind of getting her perspective uh, from her experience um, uh, supporting folks from Ukraine. So welcome to the show. Well, Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So I always like to start a little bit with just sort of a bit of an origin story of kind of how folks kind of got into the field. Um, uh, and so I thought maybe you could just kind of tell us that, kind of how you got to where you are. And, and, then, and then maybe from there, sort of tell us how, uh, or I guess sort of, what kind of work you've been doing with folks uh, from Ukraine? Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version because I'm old and it's <laughs> a, a long story. But um, I actually grew up in Chicago. My parents um, came from Ukraine after World War II. And what I found really interesting is looking up the differentiation between what were they, displaced persons or refugees. What they were called was displaced persons, which okay. means that you're displaced in your own country just kind of comparing to what's happening now, Uh is that refugees are people who are displaced outside international boundaries. Uh So technically, now that I look back, my parents were actually refugees. Uh Um, So they um, came to uh, the States actually in a later age. They were 25 and 30. And um, after that, they went to school and had kids. And one of them happened to be me. I grew up in Chicago in a really what we call a Ukrainian ghetto. When I was little, I thought like everything was Ukrainian, right? You went to Ukrainian schools and you went to Ukrainian um, commissaries, groceries. You hung out with Ukrainian kids. Um, Ukrainians um, is one culture that likes to very much stick together. So um, part of the thing was, is growing up, I spoke only Ukrainian until we were sent to school. Uh, One of the things also with the Ukrainian population and culture is, um, um, proudly, I like to say that we're very hardy when it comes to work. So right away when I was a kiddo, when there was things that you wanted, you went to work. You wanted a new pair of jeans, you got a job, a side gig. So by the time I was 11, I was working. And what do you do when you're 11? You babysit, right? Hmm. Not a lot of choices. And one of the things I found in my community was I was always interested in where do people go? that have unique learners or unique kids, Mm. how come they don't get to go on dates and get to go out, right? Mm. Because back then, the children with unique needs, that was more of a hidden population, right? And so that's what I did. I put up posters and talked to people that that's who I wanted to babysit because I thought that that was something I personally, for some reason, felt much more comfortable with. 
So that's kind of where my life started. I started babysitting for um, pe- people or kids or families that had children that were more of a, you know, d- had different disabilities or were unique learners. And from that, that's just kind of where my passion erupted. And I started working at camps with unique learners. We used to call them Easter Seals camps back then. Yes. Yes. And um, and then um, they actually, when I went to uh, college, I was, uh, funnily enough, a PE major, right? And so I thought, I don't really even know what I want to do. And I was approached mm-hmm. by this amazing woman named Dr. Norma Stumbo. And she's like, mm, you're not going to be a PE major. You're going to mm-hmm. get your degree in something called recreational therapy. Mm-hmm. I've seen you with kids. I know what you do. I see what's going on. And um, so I said, all right, then. So I became a recreational therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, from then, my passion even erupted more. And I ended up working. Um, well, I should backtrack a little. I ended up working in, um, again, formerly called institutions mm. and meeting people who on paper were called autistic or people with autism. Now, mind mm. you, this is the mid 80s. So you can kind of all out there guess how old I am. <laughs> but um, at the end of the day, I was like, what is this? And not knowing at 18, 19, having to work to get through university, what to do. Mm-hmm. We just made a lot of mistakes with people with autism. I'd be like, well, you want to do your laundry on Wednesday. Why don't you just do it on Thursday? Which was <laughs> not met with a lot of um, positivity. Let's right. just leave it that way. And then I kind of kept digging deeper and deeper going, there must be a way to connect better. And so that led me to going um, after my degree, I was looking around and ended up going to something called a replication site. And putting my hand up when I was getting my post back in uh, early education, I went back to school and raising my hand to something, somebody going, hey, we're starting this clinic and it's going to be doing some replication work of some dude named Dr. Lovas. Mm. So I raised my hand saying, great, I'll do that for 25 hours. This will give me a little bit more meat to understanding autism. Mm. Well, 25 hours turned into 30 years. Mm. Um, luckily, I was able to work at um, the replication site for about 12 years, becoming a clinical director. And being able to move to different countries and start different clinics, I was so blessed to be able to be mentored by amazing people, which then led me to Canada. Mm. Throughout those years, I guess to answer your question about the podcast we're talking about, because of being able to speak Ukrainian, Mm. I was kind of the one person people would go to to say, hey, we've got a Slavic-speaking person or a Ukrainian person that's looking for services for their kid. Mm -hmm. Would you be the person that could support them? So that's kind of also allowed me to kind of stay boots to the ground, as mm. we say, with working with the Ukrainian population. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. So before we kind of get into, you know, the, the, the whole refugee piece, which is sort of the main point of the conversation, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, kind of from your perspective, what sort of the understanding of autism is. Uh, in Ukraine, and you know, like, is there even, you know, and I suppose we're not really going to talk too much about ABA today. Yeah, right now, yeah. Um, But but just curious, sort of what 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 the context sort of is or was for maybe some of these kids before the war. Well, I'm really appreciative of that question because I think that that's a great place to start in understanding what you might see when you meet a family culturally from Ukraine. Um, a lot of the families that I work with and have worked with the last 30 years, and actually one of the benefits I have is I have family, obviously, in Ukraine still, um, and have been able to visit and be kind of aware when I got there, they're like, quick, come with me and come see this child. <laughs> um, 
is that a lot of families are going to be coming here post-war, pre-war, whatever, without really a lot of cultural knowledge of ABA. I think that we have to respectfully understand is that we've got some major cities like Kiev and Vio that there will be people that come from a level of really being computer savvy, having a lot of um, uh, a lot more ability to maybe access services from a bigger city capacity. Maybe not even unlike any country, bigger cities have more stuff, right? But we're also going to have a lot, a lot of people that what we call come from the Salah or the villages or the outlining areas that most of the families, if not all the families that I've worked with over the last 20 to 30 years, until they had a kid with autism, didn't even know what the word meant. They just assumed my kid was, as they would tell me, odd or quirky. Um, Again, coming from a place where when you're living and working and every moment of your life as a parent is working to feed your child, take care of your child, is that when you have a child like that, there's this fear of, oh my gosh, what's my kid going to do? I'm not saying the parent doesn't love their child. They love their child immensely. But that idea of what to do is the frightening part. So yes, they might look for resources or different things, but it might be within people in their culture or their village around them, not knowing um, if I'm even right now, when I'm looking at a lot of the Facebook things, a lot of people are saying, coming to having to leave my country because of the war. Does anybody know of a specialty place or a specialty school or anywhere my kid can go? So they're just looking for a safe place, hopefully somebody that will understand their child. Okay, uh, that, that, that's 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 a good perspective. So, so with that, the war started, uh, and you know, and we know from the news, millions and millions of refugees, yeah. um, and we know from uh, a bit from from the the previous uh, podcast that you know they're 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 going to countries certainly all over Europe and and coming into North America, and and it's happening. Mm-hmm. Pretty quickly, I imagine. Um, what the, what does that look like? I guess so. As far as you know, what's happening? Sort of the, the moment these folks kind of arrive in in in, in a new country, and and, as, and so for your perspective, that'll be that'll be Canada, that'll be British Columbia. Yeah, I think that one of the things, like to kind of go back sequentially, the mm-hmm. way that I look at it is kind of like when you hit your boots to the ground. Mm-hmm. It's even almost before. So let's go even back to the possibility of these amazing host families that are kind of opening their doors, right? And I'm just, I can't believe how embraceive, maybe I can believe, because it's amazing how many people, when you go on these websites of people saying, I'm coming to this country, I have to leave this country, I'm coming with my, not only three kids, but Mm -hmm. seven dogs. It is amazing (laughs) how many people are bringing, but they're bringing their backpacks and that's Mm -hmm. all they have. And their child and children or whatever. I think that the first thing is to for a host to really understand that it's not that you're just opening your doors to put somebody in your home, that you're actually opening your doors to a trauma-induced situation, right? And I think that a lot of it's going to be especially just, I mean, I'm just going to talk about primarily since we're talking about people with special needs kids or kids mm-hmm. with autism, they're going to be coming from thinking or knowing or not knowing that they're leaving something that is very stable for them, most likely, to something that is extremely unstable. And how do you communicate to that child or that person? You're not going back, Mm. right? So a lot of it we need to think about, and the host needs to understand, is that a lot of this is going to be very fear-based. 
So the best way to start is recognizing the fact is that you start from there. You start really slowly. When the person enters your house, even though myself, I am an enthusiastic person, but when my family came to visit, one thing I really recognize, and my family did not bring a child or a youth with autism or an autistic individual with them. They were so overwhelmed the minute they got off the plane, mm. right? This is so, so different than what they're used to. Like I said before, even growing up in a Ukrainian village in Chicago, I had never really gone to a grocery store that was bigger than 15 shelves, mm. right? I had never really gone anywhere that was lights and camera and action. A lot of it is is very, very simplistic, basic life day to day, right? So our good hearts from the beginning need to really accept the fact and read the situation, not more so what we want to give, which is coming from a really good place, but what the receiver needs. And I think that that's a really important place to start. And um, I don't know if if you wanted me to kind of sequentially go step by step a little bit. Yeah, please. Does that sound good? Yeah. I'm thinking about one of the things is is really setting up the room to be comfortable. Mm. One of the things is that is that some of the people may want to just really take some time to decompress. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it's like leaving and running from your home and waiting for the biometrics. That's the paperwork. Mm -hmm. to kind of get across. Now, I think it's really important to understand this aspect. I'm Ukrainian, but Ukraine is also separated by two very distinct languages. There's mm. Russian that is mostly on the east side, and then there's Ukrainian, which is more on the western side. Mm. So even though I speak Ukrainian and I do understand some Russian and I can understand it, my speaking back will be stilted because Russian is not my my most comfortable language. But we don't even have the same alphabet. Remember, we use a Cyrillic alphabet. So you, mm -hmm. can't, you can't write things down and you can't kind of pretend and say like, especially thinking about autistic kids who don't have a lot of nonverbal information, mm. you can't be using like, ver like gestures and moving your hands around because you're probably not getting a kid who wants to even look at you right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think that in preparedness, it might be a really good idea to... Um, and one of the things I've done is to kind of make a board of pictures. Mm. So then that way people can point to things that they want or need, especially kids if you're going to get kids with autism. Because mm -hmm. remember, not a lot of families that are hosting, because we're doing this so quickly, right, Ben? Mm -hmm. like, like you said, this is happening so fast. I would say 90 plus percent of the homes being opened are being kind, but have never had an autistic person in their lives. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think these kind of ideas are more for families that are going to be opening their homes, making it quiet, recognizing that these learners are some may be nonverbal. But even if they're not nonverbal, they're not going to be verbal in the English language. That's huge. And you can't kind of fake it because there's not any a lot of words that sound the same. Like head is halava. You can't even guess that, right? <laughs> and if you're pointing to your head, the kid's going to go, are you asking me if I have a headache? Are you asking mm -hmm. me if I need a hat, right? Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be super important to try to find a communicative method, number one, that's going to work for both of you. I think that's such a key place. I think the other thing, really importantly, is to remember that start slow. You know, Ukrainian people are very, they're very humble. They're very minimalistic in most cases. I know that a lot of people are donating lots of clothes and lots of things. And, you know, I remember when I went to Ukraine, I was so excited to bring, like, all these items, like all these gap clothes and all this <laughs> makeup and all this stuff. 
And when I put all this on the floor, my family looked at shock, like, what the blank do I do with this? Right? <laughs> they were like so shocked and so like, thank you, thank you. But it's almost overwhelming to the mm. point of like, I don't know what to do with this. Thank you so much, but it's so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that really in the beginning, start slow. I think it's lovely that we might be excited to give folks like, look at this new Aritzia dress. And they're going to go like, I just really need a pair of clean underwear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Start with the basics. Start with things, knowing who's coming. Make sure you've got appropriate clothes like socks and underwear and T-shirts. That is a great place to start because it's comfort. It's like comfort food, right? Yep. You have comfort clothes. And start really slow, one thing at a time. See what that person wants. See what, what turns them on and then go from there. That's a great place to start slowly. Make sure that you've got sanitary things. I know that this sounds really odd and kind of maybe super personal. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I've been donating to um, to Ukraine, to packages that we've been sending, is sanitary supplies for women. Mm, yes. Right? A lot of people are coming here with nothing on their backs. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember that there's a lot of humility in that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, and I don't want to use this word, but I'm going to use it. There's a lot of embarrassment in it. Because mm-hmm. we as Ukrainians are taught from a very early age to be, you work. You work, work, work. When I was a kid, I didn't go to like a little camp that was like making flowers. I went mm-hmm. to something called Tabir. By the time you're 10, you're going to a camp that is teaching you to be a military person, wow. right? So a lot of, we work hard and we, ha, we, we expect our kids to work hard. So there's a lot of like, when the person comes to your house, they're going to expect to be helping you as well. Mm. So that kind of communication is, there's, there might be a lot of oopses, but there's also going to be a lot of like thinking ahead to go, if you just came with your backpack, what don't mm. you have? And some of that is going to be items that are more sensitive. Right. Mm. And for me to say, hi, um, I'm going to ask you for a sanitary pad is going to be maybe not the first conversation that Mm -hmm. a person's going to feel comfortable with. Mm -hmm. So thinking ahead and having those things kind of snuggled into a room privately is going to provide them with that little bit of sense of, oof, that may not be the first conversation we're going to have. Right. So those are the small things that I kind of think ahead of. Um, knowing that they're going to make a huge difference. Are, that's, uh, that's really interesting. Are, a couple of things. Are, are host families going to know that they're getting a family that has a kid with special needs? That's sort of question one. You know, that's a really good question. It's funny. I've been looking on all these sites, and there's actually a site called Ukrainians Looking for like Homes with Autistic Children. And there's actually um, a couple of sites like that. Um, and it's interesting watching where they'd like to go. And a lot of their questions are looking for a place with specialty schools, uh, have autistic child, very good, very quiet, right? Um, A lot of it is, is they're maybe saying what they know, but they're also maybe saying something to get a home. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, uh, we're not really sure yet, neither will the host be sure until that person lands in their home, what's actually happening. Right. Like I haven't seen one that says, you know, my autistic child has sensory issues or my autistic child is nonverbal. It's really the quick and dirty. Right. And so that's going to not set up host families to be a thousand percent prepared. So I think you should be prepared for being ready. I don't want to say not for the worst because there's no such thing, but for maybe a child that's not going to be able to be verbal. 
and um, making sure that the comfort um, of the home is prepared for a child to and that family to make sure they have an area that they can go to away from your home setting, mm-hmm. right? Because as we know, Ben, right, sometimes that sensory overstimulation means that a behavior may arise and the child or that human being may need to leave someplace else. Mm -hmm. And that host family may not. They may be like, hey, come upstairs. We got a bedroom right next to ours because that's all (laughs) they have. Mm -hmm. But maybe thinking ahead, if you're going to be a host, maybe it might be a good idea if you see with any special needs that that might need to be a separate area. So there could be a decompressing place. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Or a place to go to. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then the other piece I'm wondering about, um, kind of, we've talked about sort of, you know, having some of those basic pieces and having, you know, like a visual supports in place maybe to sort of help with communication. What sorts of things do you think host families sort of will need to know just about the rest of the family? So like mom and dad, sort of that sort of thing. And, and you mentioned that one piece about the being, being, you know, sort of having that strong work ethic and kind of yeah. wanting to help help out. And I, I could see a host family saying, no, 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 yeah. you let, let us do it all for you so, and so on. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you touching upon that because I think that that's a strong value that's going to really need to be addressed. When my family comes, um, what I did was when I was still living in the States, we would host, you would get a work visa and we would host our families. Um, and this is just a funny story, but I think it's a great analogy. So we would host our family to come to work for three months. Now, mind you, please remember, and I think we all need to remember that what a a regular job in Ukraine, uh, an example is my cousin is a forester. Um, You know, like, what's another word for, you know what I mean? Works in a forest and tells people what to do. And so he makes about $50 a month, right? So when he came, I got him a job in America for three months and he came to do roofing. Well, he was able to make $3,000 over the course of like, three months, right? Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem like a lot of money, but for him, that's four or five years of work, right? So he was working like a dog, right? So when you're working on a roof, you're putting tar and things like that on the roof. So he's on the roof, not speaking any English, right? I got him a job. All of a sudden I get a phone call. It's a hundred degrees outside. I was living in Wisconsin at the time. And the the guy's like, hey, hey, talk to your cousin. He won't get off the roof. We can't (laughs) tar today because um, because it's too hot. The tower will melt. Tell him it's okay. But my cousin's like, no, I will not get off the roof. I need to make this money. I'm a hard worker. He thought he was being fired for not working hard enough because culturally he, we get up at five and work to five. Like he's like, he won't get down for lunch. And my cousin's like, I don't need lunch. I need to work. Right. And so a lot of that is the work ethic is so hard. So I had a, he had to take the phone up on the ladder. I had to interpret to him. It's okay. You're not in trouble. You are not. In, you didn't embarrass anybody. You didn't show anybody bad work ethic. It's too hot. The tar won't dry. And then he's like, "Oh, okay." It's we are raised from the ground up to work. My father just passed away a year ago at 98, wow. and until the minute he passed away, he was still doing surgery. He was saying, "Why do people not work? You lazy, <laughs> right?" It, it's just not what we're brought up with. Yeah. It's just not the ethic we're brought up with. So. When a person, no matter what's happened to them, they're coming from a trauma-induced place, that doesn't leave you, Ben. That's mm-hmm. still a part of who you are. Because you get off an airplane in a different country, your culture's still with you. So if somebody's in your home and comes upstairs and it says, can I help you do the dishes? 
that's them going, can you help me normalize my life right now, mm-hmm. right? That's just a message for them saying, can I just stand next to you and not feel like you're just giving and I'm taking because that's not what I'm used to and that doesn't make me comfortable. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to go to www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop and enter the three secret words. The first secret word is boots. That's interesting because I could totally see sort of a, a, a host family. You know, almost feeling like, like, especially if if they start sort of letting these folks, you know, do more things around the house to help out. You know, I could see, I could see some some guilt on sort of the host family's part of of sort of feeling like, like, you know, I I brought these refugees in, and now and 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 now they're almost like slaves in my home. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, Um, exactly. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. And I think that part of that is, is um, a really cool question came up the other day, and I thought that this kind of pertains to where we're at right now, is the other thing is the other side of the coin. If you're a host family, and again, appreciate, I am awed by so many people coming forward. These people are getting off a plane and they don't know what's going on. If you're going to be a host family and you're going to be like, thanks for coming on Saturday, but Monday morning I leave for work and I work 12-hour days so you're on your own. <laughs> That, on the other hand, may also be something you want to consider. You're not just leaving somebody. Like when my family came to visit, I really needed to consider how much I was going to be gone from the home because there was going to be zero communication. Now, let's be honest. There are people, English is kind of a worldwide language, and there's a lot of people who speak some words in English. But I remember, like like I said, is think of my, my cousin up on the roof. He had no way to tell them that I don't take me off the roof. Um, what happens if something happens in your house and you're at work? That's like something else too. What if that family becomes fearful? What if the family needs something? They're not going to get out and walk in the middle of Vancouver when they lived in a town of 150 people they knew. My family's from a place called Rakobute. There's 24 houses in the village. Wow. Right? They're they're not going to walk outside and go like, I'm just going to walk down to the 7-Eleven because I'm feeling a bit peckish. <laughs> Right. So really consider on how you're going to ensure that family is not left to their own devices, because remember, we don't know what's going to happen. What happens if they've got a child with autism and all of a sudden the child needs something? What happens if all of a sudden they need to go to a doctor or you know what I mean? You're you're not we we have to plan for the hope for the best. Is that what they say? Plan for the worst. Yes. Yes. Um, We're kind of talking sort of before pressed record about sort of how unregulated all this is around uh, around you know host families taking in folks and you know i mean i mean we've seen sort of similarly you know just in 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 the early days of the war and i'm I'm sure it's still happening you know the you know the the hundreds and hundreds of people from different countries you know driving their car across europe to you know go pick up families and, and and well on one hand there that's you know certainly a wonderful you know altruistic gesture on the other side of the coin you know that could be really dangerous for mm-hmm. these folks um are, are, there, are there kind of concerns there even kind of coming into canada yeah you know what um again a really good question and i don't want to take away from the fact that i am again blown away with the amounts of people's reaching out people calling me and kind of wanting to host families um 
Uh, I think that's something to consider. And I say this again with a grain of salt, not taking away from goodness of people, but not everyone is good. Yes. Right. And I think that some of the things to consider is unless now this is the law in Ukraine right now, um, any man, zero, not zero, but 18 to 60 needs to stay back and fight for their country. Right. Unless you have um, a dispensation and the dispensation in many areas is if you have more than three children, if you are a single parent, right, you're the there is no mom with the kids. And if you have a child with unique or special needs mm. now. Remember, a lot of people, we talked about this in the beginning, don't have papers. Like I am now right now working with a family coming over that they have told me their son is autistic. And so they have reached out for my help. And I said, what paper, like what papers? And they're like, what do you mean what papers? Mm -hmm. I said, what diagnosis? What? And they're like, oh, no, there's no diagnosis. We just, we just know this. Mm. Right. And so a lot of the times, 90% plus, and I think Ben, as of today, and I could be wrong, we have 4,000 families right now in Canada. Mm. And um, a lot of times on those websites, as far as I've understood, and as far as the knowledge I have, and maybe it's changing day by day, there's not a lot of, because it's happening so quickly, regulations. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of goodness of people mm -hmm. going on these Facebook sites. Like, I have a home, come to me, mm -hmm. which is beautiful. I, you know, there's a school across the street. But I've also seen a couple of sites that kind of ended up making me feel, you know, the hair on the back of your neck goes up a little bit, mm -hmm. that kind of feeling. And people have actually commented on that site, like, please disregard the site above me or please don't look at that site that myself made me feel uncomfortable. There are single women coming with their children. Yes. Unfortunately, that opens up the doors to predators or people that are slightly unsavory. Yes. Right? So I think it's really important where people, and I had reached out to the site to make a note to the families and to the moms, it is really important if, to make sure that you are getting references. Mm -hmm. It is important to make sure that you are talking to these families, communicating with these families. Um, that's point number one. Point number two is there have been a couple of families that have actually come boots to the ground, I'm going to use that terms a lot, gotten mm -hmm. on the plane, and nobody has come to retrieve them. Mm. So there was the I'll meet you at the airplane. And that's like what fear, right? Like nobody, nobody's come. And so it's really important that the family at that point quickly reached out and somebody else came, mm -hmm. right? But they had never contacted that person, right? Yeah. Like, like talk to them. It was on Facebook. If any way you can contact them, continue a dialogue, get on the phone with them if possible. Mm. Make sure that you are clearly defining as much as possible time, space, awareness, whatever. So mm -hmm. there's the A, the safety issue. If you see somebody who says, I live in a very remote place, I'm a single man, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe that's not the place you want to go to. Even I myself, um, and I know you and I both live in more remote areas, right? Mm -hmm. um, for me, I live in a very remote area. To, for like for me or you to get to a grocery store, these it's a little bit maybe too isolated, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but I think that if you're saying I'm a I'm a single gentleman that lives in a remote area, you'll be very comfortable here. That may not be the best place for a mother and her two children to go to. Now, I'm not saying clarifying here, Ben, that that person is any has any alternative, you know, or any bad intention. Mm -hmm. But you have to think right ahead of time not that not every situation is going to be what it looks like on paper 
So I'm really encouraging on these um, websites and um, whenever I can put notes on there and talking to the people who are the, I don't know, what is it called? The person who starts it. Are they the author? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, who run it. I'm kind of writing to them saying, um, could you kind of put this into your guidelines or add Mm -hmm. this? Because a lot of people won't know. Because when you're in fear, you're running, man. You got your backpack, you're grabbing your kid, and you've probably seen even seen these videos or the the sites on the on the internet of people carrying their dogs in backpacks. I mean, you are running. There is no time for a lot of really clear decision making. Now, this seems, and I don't know how much you know about sort of you know other kinds of refugee contexts. I think the most sort of well known, more recent event was the sort of the the Syrian crisis and and a lot of Syrian refugees coming in. I I just know sort of from my personal experience, I, 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 you know, I I live in in one of those, one of those maybe potentially sketchy contexts you were referring to. Um, And, and we had a, a, thanks for being honest about that. Yeah. And we had, and we had a wonderful uh, group of, of, uh, it was actually, it was through, through, I think the local church. Yeah. um, And a wonderful group of people got together and spots did, did a sponsorship of some Syrian refugees and they came here and the whole family came and it was wonderful. And, um, and, and it took a long time to get them, you know, it was, it, it was quite a process to go through. Um, and, you know, and eventually they came and, and they were supported and, and soon, and soon after they moved, I think to the, to the lower mainland because they had some family there, which was mm-hmm. perfect and it worked out really well. But, there was a lot of, uh, uh, you know, of, uh, of process and red tape and whatnot to go through. It sounds like there's none of that right now here. Is that what's happening? Is, is it because the, the, the crisis is so dire, the government is sort of waving all of that red tape and just letting everybody come in? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And I'm trying to educate myself as much as possible on that. And this is what how I see it. Um, and, and and how I believe it is. So um, the, the refugee status is opening its doors. And what happens is you have to go through a biometrics or a system. I can't remember the letters. I think it's C-U-E-T. Yeah. Um, and the paperwork that they have to go through to be able to get entrance into Canada. Once you're here, you are in refu- you can claim refugee status for up to three years. Um, it used to be two, but I believe they've upped it to three. And I think what happens is there people are cautioning that you either take refugee status, which means there's a very strong possibility that after three years, you are then sent back to Ukraine. Um, During that time, I believe that you can also, if you're able to, kind of like everybody else, Canada's really interesting in that way, isn't it? Um, I believe we're the only country in the world, because I have friends trying to immigrate here, that no matter what age you are or whatever, you've got to go through the IRCC papers to be able to prove that you can work. And also not taking away somebody else's job that's already in Canada, right? So I think that part of it is, is either you are a refugee or you will apply for moving forward what what's called permanent residency. Right. Right. And I think that that's going to be really interesting because I think while you're on refugee status, as far as I understand, you will be just like everybody else on a quote unquote work permit. You can work, you can access MSP, and you can access school for your children. Remember that I myself as an American came here 21 years ago on a work permit. Same thing. I had at that time two kids and then I ended up having a third one who's a Canadian. But when you need to have all that paperwork to access school, to access MSP, just imagine all these things, again, on your plate that you didn't understand. So I think that that's where it's going right now. Three years or you can access. Now, again, 
I'm going to assume that the people who are going to be accessing, I guess I have a lot of assumptions. Mm -hmm. One is of people who are going to be accessing the IRCC or paperwork to become permanent residents are the people that are coming with predictable jobs. Like, so on the websites, people go, I am a doctor. I am Mm. this, right? So I think that a lot of people are like, great, I know somewhere you can. But remember, even when you come here to be a doctor, you've got to, you can't just be a Ukrainian doctor coming here. You've mm-hmm. got to come here and redo your paperwork and redo your mm-hmm. schooling. It's mm-hmm. not as simple as getting a job that nobody's going to be like, there's a clinic looking for a doctor, mm-hmm. right? You ha- there's a lot of stuff you've got to do before that. It sounds beautiful and easy, but it's not. There's actually no. much more red tape, as you said, to jump through. On the other hand is my, if you're watching and if anybody who we're talking to today, I know you have been, have been watching what's happening in Ukraine, it is being completely and totally destroyed. The Ukraine that we saw four weeks ago, especially the bigger cities of Kharkov and Kiev Mm -hmm. um, and Maripol, if you've seen, Mm -hmm. there is going to be a rebuilding. How do you rebuild 13th century churches? How do you rebuild Mm -hmm. all the hospitals, all the schools? Mm -hmm. If you are on a three-year refugee and you go back, what are you actually going back to? Mm -hmm. And we're wondering, like, too, is that you're not going back. Who knows if your home's even going to be there? You know, that was what my parents were. My parents were displaced and they, they were displaced because their homes were, were no longer there. There was nothing okay. for them to go back to. And somebody asked me recently, how come your parents never went back? And I said, back to what? Right? Mm-hmm. We don't even know what's going to happen day to day. So these people are not only coming here, leaving their country that they did not want to leave from. They have zero idea if they're going to go back. So they have to go, do I start making a life here? Do I start? Mm-hmm. You know, what do I start doing here? So if it was me, I would feel relatively paralyzed, right, Mm -hmm. as a human. So I think it's going to take at least two to three weeks for them to at least acclimatize with understanding some of the basics, like how to get food, where's the little grocery store. Like you and I were talking the other day, don't take them to Costco. (laughs) (laughs) You know, don't take them to Safeway. Those are things that many of the people, especially from the Salar, from the villages, haven't seen. Mm-hmm. start small, be very, very, very cautious and very, you know, cognizant of the fact that all these things are going to be scary. You know, nobody's going to want to go like, well, I got my boots to the ground. I'm going to go to work, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it is a stopping slow. And a lot of this is also going to be maintained by the fact is that neither you nor I nor they know where this war is taking us. We're going day by day. Like right now, all we see is this destruction. We don't see anything about where it's going to end. So some of these people are also going to be grieving them, mm-hmm. grieving what they've lost, not just fear, but grief, um, and being paralyzed by the fact of not knowing. And the other big part of it is, is we have to please remember that a lot of these kids and families have no idea when and or if they're going to see their dads again. Mm-hmm. Right? So imagine taking all those emotions and our biggest thing is going to be like, Hey, you want to go to the grocery store? And they're going, could you just leave me alone? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Just give me like a little bit of time. And I think that we have to also be very respectful that if somebody's quiet or somebody just needs time away in their room, that there has to be a way to communicate that because we as beings are social, right? Mm -hmm. And the way we make people happy is by making a big dinner and food and comfort. But sometimes for them, that might just mean if I don't come out of my room for a day, it's okay, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all of that needs to be communicated, take, um, communicated and taken into account. Um, 
And then I think one of the things I know that you and I wanted to talk about is like, mm-hmm. what, what happens after that when, when school is kind of over, I mean, break is kind of over and now you've got three kids that you've got to walk over to a school. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and we'll get to that in a second. I'm, I'm wondering about, like I think I, I think a lot of these refugees are probably going to come to probably bigger cities more likely than you know smaller ones. Yes, just, I, I, I would assume seems to be the case. That's where the airports are, and so on and so forth. And um, do I, I've heard that Canada, in particular, and I think we have a lot of Ukrainian folk in Canada. That, yes, that right? that's yeah. true. Um, is 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 are, are there? Would it be helpful to sort of like? I mean, I'm sure a lot because of that. A lot of the, the the host families will be Ukrainian, and that'll be wonderful. But there'll be others that aren't. Are there are there usually in the bigger cities like a Ukrainian community that you can kind of go to that might yeah. be sort of supportive? Like maybe that's where you want to start, like when you're taking them out and that sort of thing. You know what? I love that question. Thank you so much. I think that that's like really kind of leading into what's um, what would be the most helpful. We do have large Ukrainian populations in Toronto. Um, Saskatchewan, and we actually do have a large population also in Vancouver. Um, and I'm going to be brutally honest, and we've talked about this before. Vancouver <laughs> is extremely expensive, and we know yes. how hard it is to live here for you know any individual. And I think that people are slowly starting to figure that out. Unless you have a family member, the people that I have been connected with here in British Columbia are coming to family members, so they're coming to more people that they know of. Um, a lot of people are looking and have been guided by that website to go to the towns that are a little bit more Ukrainian based um, and maybe not as economic, more economically feasible. So um, it's interesting, too, is a lot of um, Ukrainians have been reaching out that are also French speakers and are, French is a more uh, dominant language to them than English. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of looking into like obviously Quebec and Montreal area. Um, the only issues, again, people are saying, if you're coming out here, remember that if you're going to be going to school, you're, it's going to be French speaking schools. So I think that um, people are starting to really figure out when they're it used, it, you might, when this started four weeks ago. Can you believe we're a month into this? When it started four weeks ago, I think it was like open doors to anybody. And I'm thinking we now are starting to go like, OK, let's take a breath. Let's take a beat here and start to kind of point people into the direction of where's going to be more feasible for your family, for your kids. Um, And to answer your other question is, I'm seeing almost 60-40. I'm seeing about 60% non-Ukrainian families. I'm kind of keeping a little like a baseline Mm. here for myself Mm. and about 40% because still remember the demographics are still going to be a lot higher. A, for English speaking or non-Ukrainians, we've got more families like that here. And secondly, is um, what I've been seeing is a lot of Ukrainians that have um, come here, emigrated here in the last how many years, also have homes here, but don't have homes that can support having another family coming, right? So I'm seeing a lot of families like in the prairies going, hey, we've got, this is such a beautiful story. We've got six kids, we're on a farm and we've got five more bedrooms, right? Mm. So we're, we're seeing a lot of families that are able to have homes to host family, recognizing that space is important. And I know a lot of Ukrainians would love to host their families, but they're also living in a one-bedroom, one-bathroom apartment, right? So that's that's not the most um, usable or feasible for them. But having Ukrainians close 
or making sure that host family reaches out to Ukrainian churches. Um, many families are reaching out saying, I'm Christian, I'm looking for our Christian families because they're really looking forward to maintaining their culture and staying close to a church. That's very important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think that a lot of families, also host families, recognize if you're not a Ukrainian-speaking family, try yourself to reach out to find somebody in your community that can at least come over mm -hmm. and help you translate as much as possible. So that's kind of what I'm offering. I've kind of reached out to school districts, to autism communities, to anybody that I can to say, listen, if you've got, um, right now I offer to um, a clinic that both you and I are familiar with that does um, um, psychological testing mm. to say, hey, listen, when you do testing, I'll come in and interpret for you. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm kind of taking a little backseat to maybe a little bit of the BCBA or ABA part, but kind of mm. throwing out the, hey, I speak Ukrainian and that's the culture and um, I know how to make a good pierogi. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I want to be able to be like, for lack of better words, comfort food. I want to be able to support because, like I said, is I saw my family when they just came to visit and stayed with me for a month. The fear and the kind of like taking it slow. I can't imagine what's happening when you just came from hiding shelters from bombs. Like we're doubling the fear, right? So I think that that's super important to know. And again, going and going back to that, we're coming with children with autism. So there's that extra layer of a family going, oh, my gosh, now I'm, I'm bringing a child that only was comfortable, as you and I know, within their own routine. Now this routine is going to be disrupted. How do I remake that routine and keep that as close as possible to what they knew to make sure that my, my child is as successful as they can be? Because I have no idea where they're going to be going after they leave this host's door, right? The second secret word is trauma. You talked about uh, a little bit about paperwork there and, and psychological testing, and, and it's great. I mean, I think I think someone like yourself, you, you don't have to talk ABA, but you know the system. Yeah. So you're able to help them kind of navigate that stuff. It's it's we're pushing April here. Uh, you know, there's only a, sort of yeah. a few months left in the school year. It, it's it's likely, I think, that maybe some of these kids might end up in school before the summer, but probably a lot of them won't. Yeah. Uh, and so it'll be sort of summer planning and sort of trying to, you know, and, and certainly an opportunity to relax some more there and hopefully for the families as well. But in September, I, I could see, yeah. you know, a, a lot of these host families, particularly the ones maybe that aren't Ukrainian, um, you know, wanting to get these kids back and get, get them into school, feeling yep. like school is really important for all these different reasons. And we've certainly heard certainly during the COVID crisis, how, you know, how much, how, how, how people feel about sort of, you know, socialization and being in school yes. and being really important and so on and so forth. Um, so they're going to want to start sticking these kids in the schools. Uh, but as you say, most of them probably don't, aren't coming with, you know, uh, the diagnoses. Yeah. Um, and so, and so how can host families kind of help there? I think, um, so one of the things I've started doing is that, um, firstly, I want to also just really respectfully say is I do know there's a lot of Canadian families waiting right now mm. on long um, time waits, wait lists to get diagnosis. Um, mm. I could be wrong, Ben. I'm, I'm guessing it's at least 12 to 18 months. It's a long time. So it's really hard. And sometimes I find it really um, difficult to sometimes say, hey, could we jump the queue? <laughs> because we've got a child in trauma. 
But one of the things that we have to do is maybe continue to push the fact that these kids are coming with no paperwork. And what we do know in schools, right, Ben, is without paperwork, you're not going to get support. Yes. And so we need to make sure that a lot of the families that are coming without a diagnostic paper are assessed as soon as possible because we're going to not we're going to fill up schools with even more learners that have no supports. So they're not just coming with a diagnosis or with no paperwork with autism. They're coming as ELL learners that are not going to know the language either. And they're coming with major and major, major trauma. So I think that maybe with the host families as much as possible, and what I'm trying to do is, and I'm kind of offering through your podcast, hopefully that people can hear it, I can offer more help with that. We need to support and encourage um, getting a diagnosis as soon as possible, and actually maybe even working either within the schools that these kids are going to go to, reaching out to the schools ahead of time is really important. So with some of the kids that say the kids coming to school in Vancouver, Perhaps if they're not going to go to school right now, but in September, now is the time to go to that school and saying, this kid's coming in September. Is there any way to get psychological testing within the school by your mm. school psychologist? If not possible, we need to reach out to the psychologist and to the areas that we know here of any psychologist to say, listen, this kid is coming. Can we put him on the wait list right now? We will take any cancellation. <laughs> Then I am not opposed to begging, <laughs> right? I think that the thing is, is like we have to do what we have to do. Also recognizing that there's multiple kids here also waiting for diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So there is not an easy answer to this. But I think that if it's kind of like if you don't say it, it's not heard. So okay. we've got to get out there and make sure that these kids get as much fast diagnosis as possible. Because again, when I went to Ukraine and visited family um, in the Chernobyl area, um, they would say like, oh, hey, come, can you come see my kid? And again, we're talking about what we think people know to what we, people really do know. And I would meet young people that are 18, 19 years old that worked on the farms. They would come out, work on the farms, and then their families would take them home to their room. And many times for safety, they would have to lock their doors and they would say, this is what we do. We work on mm -hmm. the farm. This is all they know. And then this is what they would do, right? How are you going to reacclimate those young people? Right. Um, and I'm talking mostly I would see adults at that time. But we're talking about I do work with quite a few young people right now. Um, I think in my case, what I've got four or five Ukrainian families at the moment. Mm. But we started these kids at when they came knowing there's some problem. They came three, four years ago when the children were little. Some mm -hmm. of the kids right now that I'm working with are coming here without paperwork that are 13, 14. Yes. And that's, as you and I know, that's a whole new ball game because you're coming with 13, 14 years of skills that work for you in that environment that are not mm -hmm. going to work for you in this environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, I mean, definitely aware the, 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 we could do a whole other episode on the, yeah. the wait, on the wait list issues in, 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 in our province and everywhere 100%. else. And, and, and I know uh, there's sort of one sort of central spot where folks kind of go and, and get those, but there, there does seem to be, um, and again, I'm, 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 less familiar with this stuff because my work has been mostly with adults, but, yeah. um, I, but I do see on, on, on some of these autism sort of social groups and whatnot, that there are, there are ways to get, you know, private assessments done yes. but those, but, and, and that can certainly move you up the queue, but those things aren't cheap. No. Um, what's, are there resources available for refugees for that sort of thing? You know what? Like, that's actually a really good question as well. And to be honest, I don't know. Um, I think that um, we're going to have to be really creative. Four weeks ago, we didn't know this was going to happen. So now we're kind of reinventing the wheel. 
Um, part of it is for me right now is the people that I'm reaching out to, I'm kind of being very, very honest about the fact that we have people coming that a, um, used every last penny they had to just get a flight here. So I'm not going to lie and say they have another $2,500 for an assessment, right? Um, $2,500 is do the math, two years of work for most people or a lot of people that whatever. Like, um, so I think that that's going to be a really interesting question. And I think that each person or each diagnostic facility is going to have to make their decision how they rise to this occasion. As far as, um, how that goes, if there's going to be fundraising things for that, I'm going to, again, be perfectly honest. When it, when you go down the line of what people need to survive, we're talking about clothes, housing, food. I don't think diagnostics are, unfortunately, the right. top three. You know, I wish right. it was, but it's not. So I, I guess what I'm saying is um, I'm going to continue to be part of the solution as I can to finding out how to help as people contact me or reach out to me. Hopefully I can support as much as I can, knowing that A, I know ABA and B, I know Ukrainian and C, I had to live the culture. So mm-hmm. hopefully those three things can help. Um, because when I have done translation in the past, um, a lot of it is, is it's not as easy as just translating it. It's, mm-hmm. it's the understanding and the kid and the family going, why is he asking me to do that? <laughs> right. Right. There's so much more that's included in that because culturally we're just kind of like, hey, do this. And that's it. I say to the mother, he wants you to make a block. And the mother goes, oh, we play so much blocks at home. I'm like, yes, yes, I understand that. <laughs> right. But I think a lot of it is just understanding is some, you know, whatever this person says, we're just going to do It's going to help you understand, you know. So there's so much more to it. And there's so much more to it than just kind of showing up. Mm. Right. There's so much more to it because after that. And I don't have to like tell you this. We've got another possibility of only two years more of funding, right? So mm. um, there's so much more that goes into it. Like timing right now is wicked. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's really important to really get these families diagnosed because these 12 and 13 and 14 year olds that are coming here, if they don't have something to support them, we're kind of off blanks creek. I promised you I wouldn't swear. I'm doing good, aren't I? You're doing great. <laughs> but right. <laughs> so yeah, that's a huge one for me. Is like we're talking about people that need services now now yeah so there's i think there's really gonna uh probably be a call for some of these host families to to do some of that squeaky wheel stuff and, yeah. and advocacy stuff because obviously you're you know you're just one person you're not you can't really advocate for everybody um uh, you know if they want to get those kids in school and get those supports or they're going to run into a whole lot of problems especially yeah. those families that aren't familiar with you know having kids with special needs themselves you know i think that's going to be a, a big one yeah. and i think also the curveball on that one is is that a lot of people are going to be coming here um and i think that we're assuming that they understood that their child had special needs now, the other part is, is when you live in a small village and you know everybody and everybody knows your child, there's the, oh, this is who he is. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden you are living in a different place and somebody sees your kid. And we've seen families like this that we've taken on where the family was like, oh, I just kind of thought this was how he was. And then somebody else sees him. Like, so some of these kids might be placed into school. And mm-hmm. then the teachers are going like this happened to me. I had a beautiful family that I've been honored to work with for years and years. They were adopted from Ukraine. They were two and four years old. And the mother came to me and she's given me permission to always talk about this Hmm. is that she said, Hey, she brought them to me when I ran my school, when we had Harmony House and she Mm -hmm. brought them to me and she said, can you please, um, you know, tell me what they're saying? I don't speak Ukrainian. 
And I said, I watched them for about 45 minutes, an hour. And I said, I, they're not saying anything. These boys are more than likely have autism. And she went like, all right, what do we do? <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's what's going to happen. The kids are going to go to school and the parents, because they live so close, you know what it is? You see right. your kid every single day. That's your kid. That's what they are. But then when somebody else sees them, you know, that happens to our kids now. A preschool teacher brings it to your attention. A kindergarten yes. teacher brings it to your attention. These kids are going to be going to school and we're going to soon find out it's not just language. So we're going to have kids that are coming. The parents want help. And then we're going to have kids that are going to school and then they're going to need help. So this is going to be a long term. And I'm not using the word problem lightly. This is going to be a long term situation. Absolutely. And I, mean, I think there's going to be some folks that are going to have t- trouble, you know, differentiating between is this a, a disability or yes. is this just a trauma response? Or right? a cultural difference. A hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's going to be really, really important to kind of like I said, is when that mom brought the, the two boys to me, like um, she was saying, what were they saying? Because they were talking, talking, talking. They were stimming, right? What you and I call like engaging in self-stimulatory behavior. Yeah, yeah. But she thought, oh, my gosh, they're talking so much. And, what are they? and mm-hmm. I'm like, they're not saying anything. Um, and so I think, again, uh, she was a mother adopting children from a different country, didn't speak the language. So imagine host families who won't know anything and don't have that same, like, I didn't adopt you. I, I took you into my house. And the host families are also assuming, is this for two months or three months or six months? <laughs> mm. Right. Um, there's going to be so much of this and so much of it. What happens when the host family goes, hey, we've got four kids. And when your child's engaging in negative or behavioral issues, this is now becoming disruptive. So, I mean, like you said, this could be five podcasts because I think um, not to be so bold, Ben, but mm-hmm. I think this might be a podcast that we might need to entertain in two or three months time again to see what's actually happening. Absolutely. I'm, I'm into it for sure. Yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about, um, you know, the work ethic and some of those pieces. I'm wondering sort of other kinds of, you know, sort of cultural pieces that that we're not going to be thinking of when these folks come here that we need to be. Yeah. Well, you know, I think a lot of it is, is based on the fact is that one of the things my sister and I were talking about the other day is that um, we were so excited. I think I told you this story before. We were so excited when my family, this is many, many, many years ago, because remember in the nineties, in 1991 or no, 89 or 90, when the wall went down, travel could happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that was actually the first time my father had seen his sister in what, 40 years. I can't even imagine. I still look at the pictures in awe of what their faces look like. You see each other when you're 20 and then you see each other when you're 60, right? And so when they were able to get off the plane with nothing, they had a paper bag and then they're hungry, right? So we're like, oh, let's go get, oh, I love Indian food. And they're like, what? <laughs> or I, I love Italian <laughs> food. And they're like, pardon? You know, and, I, and so <laughs> what we needed to culturally understand is that like, it's really important to make sure that the first thing we did when we got home is we actually made food together, right? There's a lot of culture around the fact of when I would go visit my family in Ukraine, it was a lot culturally. Once we went out to a restaurant and my aunt was like, that's the first time I've gone out to eat in about, what, nine, ten years, <laughs> right? It, you you just don't do that. That's that's for special occasions. We here are like, hey, I don't have anything. Let's order in or, you know. A lot of the culture is around food. A lot of the culture is around um, the preparation of food, the talking together, the joy of having the food, and the sitting down and sitting for an hour, two hours, right? So a lot of Mm. culture is around that. A lot of the culture is also around their church, 
I think it's really important to recognize the fact that church is extremely important. Um, I was brought up Ukrainian Orthodox, and then we were brought up Ukrainian Catholic. It switched over, right? Mm. So a lot of it is very important to recognize that that's going to be a place of worship. It's going to be very important. So if you're going to be a host family, it might be really important to make sure that you reach out to make sure that you know a church or if there's a church close. Because this is a war of culture. And so not to become political, but part of the things that is trying to be killed is our language and our and our religion. Um, and again, it kind of goes back to the face place of culturally. We are a culture of minimalism, right? So uh, don't over. It's a lot of don't overdoing. Going back to the culture, don't over, um, don't overkill. Going out and doing too much. And I think that's something that might be really beautiful to do is to really maybe find five, ten words that you can learn. I think that will bring mm. great comfort. So mm-hmm. obviously, like knowing words like prashu, um, which is like please, or would you like this? It means a lot of things. Or or spate, like to go to sleep. Learning words that you can say that will bring great, great joy. You're leaving something you love behind and coming to something new. Somebody trying to engage mm. with you and trying to learn a few words will bring great comfort. Because that shows such a high level of respect that you cared to try to say, mm. don't worry about pronunciation. We have a lot of that nobody mm-hmm. can do. <laughs> um, but mm-hmm. um, but trying to come up with words that will bring like like words that we all use every day. Learn 10 of them. Go on um, Duolingo. Learn 10 or, you know, learn mm. 10 or 15 words that will that will clearly define that you went out of your way to kind of learn to try to communicate amongst the pictures and things like that. But like even food, you know, learning words like that, like yiste, you know, Mm -hmm. yiste means like, you know, if you ate it with a question, instead of having to mimic it, you you could ask it. And then, Mm. like I said, you will, you will be shocked with the smile you get. When my family came here Mm. and a lot of my neighbors wanted to learn English, they were just chuffed. They were over the moon excited that somebody tried to learn Ukrainian. The third secret word is Ukraine. You know, and this is certainly comes from my, you know, lack of knowledge and, and, and bias and whatnot. But certainly when I see, you know, uh, uh, Ukrainian folks speaking um, up until recently, uh, I, I would have just assumed yes. they were Russian um, um, and uh, probably would have assumed many of the folks in sort of that come from Eastern European countries were Russian, uh, uh, just because you know, I've just been sort of learned that that accent seems to be a, a, yes. in movies, right? That accent's associated with the, the Russian mobster in a movie or something. Um, are our host families going to know what language these folks speak? You know, that's a, that's another really good question. Is because, um, like, I think it's really important. You know, right now is such a great time to kind of educate ourselves, right? And um, mm-hmm. a quick just kind of synopsis of it is, is in, um, in, in the early 1900s, um, there was something what was called the artificial famine. And what happened to the east side of Ukraine, many, many Ukrainians were starved. And then what happened was with by an artificial famine from Russia. And what happened is many people from Russian community moved to Ukraine or it became the then it, the people that were there, it became the language. Many years, over the years, because of what happened, if everybody looks into history of what's happened in Ukraine from the early 1900s to 1990, we were not, we, Ukrainians, were not allowed to speak Ukrainian. 
So you maybe did it at home, but at schools and outside of that, it was mostly Russian. So a lot of people would say to me growing up, well, my name is Bodana, but the correct pronunciation is Bogdana. And a lot of people would say to me, like, what's your nationality? When I would go to uh, public school, you know, for in my neighborhood, you know, there was not a lot of Bogdanas in my neighborhood, right? I lived at, I, our culture and our community where we would go to would be the Ukrainian neighborhood, but where my parents settled was um, there were Ukrainians, but the public schools where I went to was mostly North American schools. I lived in an Italian neighborhood. There was no Bogdanas. So people would be like, oh, you're Russian. You know, oh, you, do you understand Russian? I'd be like, no, I'm Ukrainian. And then people would say, quote unquote, oh, it's the same thing. Right. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something, again, culturally that we have to be very careful about is it's not fair to say that. It's like we don't say that to a lot of other cultures. Right. And I think that that we have to be very, very um, acclimatized, understanding that even me, like I said, is if your family is coming, which most families are coming from the most destroyed areas, which is Kharkiv, Metapol, you know, Kiev, is that it's going to be more people who speak Russian. So kind of find mm. out, I think the host families, it would be really helpful to find out when the family says where they're coming from, it's not very difficult to go onto the internet and find out what language is mm. spoken there. Like, and I think that okay. that is really helpful. Again, I can speak both of those and understand both of those, but I really chop it up when I speak Russian. I'm not going to lie. My language of origin and my language that I spoke at my home and with my kids and with my family has always been pure Ukrainian. I was speaking to a gentleman here that we're, I'm working with and doing donations. And when he was speaking to me, definitely we understood each other, but it was definite the, could you say that again? And even though we're from the same country, mm-hmm. right? So it was really, it's really to identify that is going to be really big. I think that's important. Um, And again, that's also going to be important for children when they go to school, because we just can't throw a kid in school hoping they'll be okay all day listening to somebody speaking English. Yes. Yes. There's enough, I think, interpreters. There's got to be teachers or or, uh, EAs or paraprofessionals that speak the language. So I think that people like that are going to have to kind of rise to the occasion. Mm, Yeah, that's really important. And I think even you know you you we you talked at the very beginning about you know things like there's there's some of these sort of picture boards that are out there now that that uh, and you shared a couple and I've yeah. seen a couple other ones that, you know, that have the picture of whatever you're doing and that sort of English word yeah. on the bottom and then the Ukrainian word on the top. Um, we often think of those as being things that we would use you know to to communicate with these kids with special needs, but. I suppose you could easily also be using those initially with 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 the families themselves too. Oh, absolutely. Because I, well, I look at it this way: is like a picture says a thousand words, right? There's not going to be a miscommunication um, if you use a visual because a picture of an egg mm-hmm. is an egg. There's no difference, right? Mm. So it's going to it's yes. going to make your life a lot easier and their life a lot easier than if you're mm-hmm. going to be making a circle with your hands and then putting your mouth like you're going to eat and that person's like meatball, right? Right. I think it just yeah. makes life simpler and it's going to decrease some of the stress that the, everybody is feeling because it just make like I said is I was able to communicate with my family. But like, I remember even going, like we did, I think I told you the story, we went out for pizza, which my family was like, holy crow, this is the best stuff ever. Like they wanted to go out for pizza (laughs) every night, right? And then when the (laughs) lovely person, waiter and waitress was talking to them, and then they were like becoming frustrated because like, they're like, do you want something to drink? 
And like, maybe I was involved in another conversation and this went on and on mm. and on and they're picking up water. And my family's like, no, vada, no water. And, and or else I have some. And the person's like, okay, Coca-Cola. And they're like, what? And it just, it went on and on. And it was just kind of like, you know what? It would have been just easier to pick, show them a picture of a Coke can. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. And I, the thing mm-hmm. is, is like, I think the whole thing is we're trying to make people's life easier. Every morning when a person wakes up, the thing in the forefront should be is, how do I make it easier? If you're going to make eggs for breakfast, bring out the egg carton. Just show that, right? It's And that's so yes. important for the family, for the child. Yes, we're talking about families with kids with autism, but let's remember that the families are coming also with so much trauma. I cannot imagine holding your kids at night while there's bombings. Nobody can walk away from that feeling like, whew, we left there. We're good now. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, it is, we have no idea about what everybody's, as I call it, what rocks they're carrying in their backpacks. And they're going to be no. wanting to protect no. their children, but they're also going to be wanting to help you follow their culture. Like million things are going to be happening. It has community, like, you know what, in our job, Ben, what's number one for our kids is communication, right? So if we remember that in the forefront of how we can best communicate, that is like going to be so much easier for everybody. And that's why I'm really mm-hmm. pushing mm-hmm. it forward. If we're going to be sending kids to school now, please, we know how much it is, how hard it is for a kid with autism here to go to school. And they're going, well, mm-hmm. we'll figure them out. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can't, there's mm-hmm. no time to figure kids out that are coming with trauma, a different language and autism. You need to mm-hmm. be prepared. You need to make sure that whatever you're possibly using in that home gets packed up and goes to the school. You can't just go like, I hope it works out today. I hope they go to the playground and mm-hmm. it's going to be a great time. Yeah, absolutely. And that again, and, and I know we're not really talking too much about mm-hmm. the trauma piece here because that's not necessarily either of our expertise, areas yeah. of expertise. And certainly when it comes to war trauma, I've actually tried to look into yeah. getting a guest on and, 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 and I talked to sort of one researcher in, uh, in Egypt actually, who's, uh, done a little bit of work with Syrian refugees and that sort of thing. But even she said to me that there are, there's really no one doing specific work on sort of childhood trauma, child, yeah. children with special needs and trauma during sort of wartime. Yeah. And so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty new thing for a lot of folks. But I would imagine, you know, just sort of from a more obvious kind of perspective just just even things like, you know, uh, you know, like, like even a, a car, yeah. you know, maybe rear-ending yeah. another car you know could could immediately take someone back to 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 those 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 early moments when when you know the the missiles started, started firing or 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 just a fire in general yeah. you know um you know uh, in, in 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 a you know in, in a setting and so i think that folks just will also need to be kind of cognizant of all of those things when they start seeing reactions oh you know, a hundred percent, like, um, my parents, when they came to America, they were like, I, like I said, 25, 30 years old at that time. And they had had obviously zero therapy. I grew up watching my family struggle with trauma, right? It never kind of goes away to a certain degree, right? I would, there would be parts of, you know, the year or the month where I could see that my parents were struggling with things, um, growing up, um, my parents, my dad was a veterinarian, my mom was a chemist, and they went to school when I was growing up. We all were at school at the same time because first they had to come to a country and go, hey, I'm going to take 65 jobs working in a hotel, cleaning floors and whatever, right? They came with degrees, but they had to redo them all here. 
And like, I remember times my grandfather raised us as well. He came, my mom and dad were able to raise money to bring him over. And in our homes, the, the oldest person is the patriarch, right? So the way that the culture works is whatever grandpa says goes, right? So at that time, my father was had lived here enough to kind of go like, oh my gosh, I'm a little bit Americanized, right? But like, now I have to remember that I do whatever he says. But when we would eat food, you eat what the patriarch eats first, right? And the thing is, is we grew up where my, we didn't have a lot, me growing up, because obviously my parents were still struggling and trying to get into schools and do stuff. But when there's food on the table, you eat it. Like there's no like, mm, I don't like that, right? Like it's, there's a lot of, um, the culture, a lot of it is, is about, and with the lack of better words, it's about obedience. Um, and when I was a kid growing up, you didn't speak till spoken to. You know, you would, it was very much, you know, kind of a joke. This sounds like you were talking about the Russian mafia. It's the don't cry or I'll give you something to cry about, right? It's very <laughs> much, um, we were brought up in a very, very strict kind of a manner in that regard. I'm not saying there wasn't love, but you grow up very quickly. When you are, by the time you're 10, you know what to do. Because in the back of my parents' minds were, we, by the time they were taken out of their homes when they were 12, they were misplaced, displaced people. My mother and father wandered from displaced camps for 10, 12 years. My mother at the age of 12, 13 was taking care of her family. So that stays in your mind, right? So trauma is, um, and again, we're not trauma experts, but I do PTSD and trauma. It kind of goes generationally, right? You know what I mean? It doesn't kind of go away. Because you see it. And so like the part of this is, is like, you're, that's why I'm actually kind of asking really kindly again, remembering though we're not experts on that part, but remember the families coming to you, host families and us, we are going to have to be gingerly very respectful of listening, right? Don't assume, listen, read these people, understand what they need. If their face is feeling overwhelmed, stop, right? If, if something's happening, be conscious enough not to be like, well, that hurt my feelings. I made a big dinner, <laughs> right? Like it's, <laughs> you have to kind of really recognize it's not about us. And I can really see from the love yes. of the outpouring of the beautiful people that are reaching out that they want to reach out. Mm -hmm. But when you're in week two of this, it might start to look a little different. Patience is going to be huge. Yeah. No, I'm, this is all going to take a lot longer than <laughs> yeah. uh, that, that I think folks. This is not a holiday. This is not yeah. somebody going. I'm coming for two yeah. weeks. This is people going. I was yeah. running for my life, and who are you, and what the heck's going on? Yeah, yeah, and 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 of course, just that other piece that you mentioned a couple times already. The the yeah. fathers, you know, and 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 the lack. I, I is I, I don't know if you know about this, but uh, it just you, when you mentioned sort of the the patriarch piece and sort of the you know the senior in the family, are are there are there also because of sort of the conscription or whatever thing in, in the Ukraine, 18 mm -hmm. to 60, are there folks over 60 as well yes. that are coming in mm -hmm. as refugees and, um, and, and, and are, and are folks potentially getting sort of, uh, you know, multi-generational families coming into their homes? Oh, another great question. And the answer is yes. If you, um, a lot of the sites that I've been on because people are explaining who are coming um, there are not just a lot of people bringing their parents. Well, there's lots of different scenarios. There's a lot of people bringing their parents that are in their 60s or 70s, right? Now imagine bring, come, somebody who is so ingrained in their community 
right? Leaving in 60 and 70, because you're like, oh, wow, maybe I was going to retire with the people I've known all my life, right? That was my grandfather who really, really struggled. My grandfather was a historian. He wrote books. When he came here, he was already at an age where, like, he was, I, I loved him. He was the man who was like, I don't speak English. I'm Ukrainian, right? It was an unfortunate situation. Like, he couldn't become... Americanized. It just didn't feel right in his heart, right? So he left what he loved. And with that comes a certain sense of depression, right? And a certain sense of of a lot of things. But when my grandmother came, she also, like a lot of the Ukrainian people are seeing, came with health issues. So a lot of these people are coming with health issues. I've seen, uh, I've talked to a couple different families that are coming with, um, there's a, 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 a people coming with um, needing dialysis, needing um there's a man coming that needs a has a this very rare blood disorder who now because of the war he is taking two to one um blood transfusion whatever he needs a day where he needed four right they're like living on borrowed mm. time so yes there's many multicultural families coming and uh, the multicultural multicultural age families coming which actually adds so much more to it because I remember my mom saying when she came to America and then brought her dad, it was no longer of her going, oh, my gosh, I've got to acclimatize. Now it's, oh, my gosh, I have to acclimatize and work with these people that are 60, 70 years old that are going, I'm not learning this language. I, I, didn't, want to, I didn't even want to leave my country. Right. So a lot. Then you're, you have the sandwich, right, of trauma that comes to it. So um, and again, a lot of times and this is another important factor is. When you have a child with a unique ability, a lot of times the parents deal with it, not the grandparents. They say a lot of times, mm. hey, we're dealing with this. Oh, sh- stay quiet, right? Sh- or whatever. Because it's a, mm-hmm. it's a different kind mm-hmm. of a thing. And a lot of grandparents, like when I was in Ukraine, the parents would be like, okay, I think there's something unique with my kid, but don't tell my mom. Mm-hmm. Because there's a, a sense of, I don't want to say, I don't want to say it's ashamed. That's not a good word, but let's just use it. There's a mm-hmm. sense of they're not going to mm-hmm. get this, so don't tell them about it. Mm-hmm. And even a lot of the families that I've worked with over the last 30 years, when I would go to their houses, um, I also had a clinic in England at a time, and they would be like, when you come here, don't say you're an autism person. Just say you're like a, a you're helping with speech a little bit or you're a nanny. Because they just couldn't bear to tell their families that this was a diagnosis that had a name that was confusing to them and was not normal. So there's a lot of traditional criteria around it this isn't really specific to refugees but i wonder before we kind of wrap up if we could just touch on sort of um because i think i think it'd be valuable for folks sort of just let's sort of move away from the refugee piece and just sort of think think about ukrainian families that have been here a long time that you know they've gotten the diagnoses and so on and so now they're getting and and, and so this is sort of the only maybe aba part we're going to talk about here um and now now they're actually going to get some some services um, are, are there some some pieces that I think that behavior analysts or or really just any professional I suppose, uh, you know, uh, that's supporting these kids needs to sort of take into account that's going to be different from working with other families. Um, I think that every culture obviously comes with its differences. I can obviously only speak mm-hmm. to mine. Um, I think a lot of it yeah. is is uh, being Ukrainian. Um, there's a lot of respect when a professional comes to your house, right? There's a lot of, oh my gosh, this is somebody who's coming with so much great knowledge. And I think that there is um, a lot of people will be so respectful. They want to ensure that you are honored. That is huge. 
And I think a lot of it is, is, and you and I talked a little bit about this, about how there's different lines and areas of crossing and not crossing, whatever. But when you go to a Ukrainian house, a lot of times, again, going back to what I was saying with comfort and food, there is a huge amount of when you're going to be talking to me about my child or whatever, we're going to sit down over a cup of tea. I'm going to have to understand what's happening. And I'm going to be honoring you and your knowledge, right? A lot of the time then after that, what happens is Ukrainians will process. We will process what we want to understand and what we want to take from that. And from that, visit by visit by visit. Remember, because a lot of families, zero. If you see a doctor in Ukraine, that's a big deal, right? They will be like, and you're Mm -hmm. coming next week again, (laughs) right? (laughs) So a lot of it is going to be based on the fact of overwhelmment. So a lot take time to develop that trust. Take time to let that person know that you are on the same page with them, right? Take time mm-hmm. to know that it's going to take three, four, five, six, seven, eight visits for the person to go like, oh, my God, you keep coming back. You promised it mm. and you're actually doing it because that's going to be something unheard of, right? Nobody in mm. the villages or whatever, maybe in cave, I don't know. I, I'm an ignorant of what happens there. But when I was telling, when I came to families that I work with here and I'm like, hey, can we book for next week? And they're like, for what? <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm coming back. Oh, not you will not only see me once a year and tell me what to do. Even the families I work with now, wow. and I'm like, hey, can we Zoom next week? They're like, do you have time? Are you okay? <laughs> I'm like, yes, mm. of course, this is my job, right? So don't mm. be alarmed mm. by their expressions or their ex- like going like, this is crazy, right? Mm-hmm. But know that when you mm-hmm. come there, you will always be met with a cup of tea or whatever. You'll be always met there with the first, would they want to make sure you are comfortable. Accept that. Accept their humility. Accept that because when you do that, that will put them in a much greater ease to be able to reflect with you because you accepted what they give you. Because they're thinking, oh my gosh, you were giving me this. What can I give you? Mm. That ha- We have to meet in the middle. And I am always honored by the families that I work with. They will always ask me, how are you? How is your family? It is, you know, that that connection piece is really important because they have to feel that they're a part of this to be able to accept what you're going to give them. And also then culturally is a traditional ABA program, as we know, we're just going to go back to a very tradition of going to do discrete trials, whatever you're doing, a lot of families might struggle with that because it won't make sense to them. They're going to want more of a, mm-hmm. to a certain degree, a lot of my families wanted more of a PBS model to understand how to, mm. how to, how to engage their child in certain behaviors, right? So it's mm-hmm. going to be really mm-hmm. important to find out what they need and what they want, which I think is the appropriate model, as you and I have spoken for any family, right? We need to not be an mm-hmm. expert model. Mm-hmm. We need to be a listening model. Mm-hmm. And to really clearly define and find out what that family wants, but to also clearly remember when you're going in there, you're building a lot of trust and you're building a lot of connective values because it's, it really is going to be maybe past what some people feel comfortable with. Like if you have an hour session, but the first 10 minutes you're having tea and they're talking, that is so important Mm -hmm. because if you skip that, you're kind of sending the message that I really don't care about what you want to talk about or culture. Right. It's because we're kind of taught to kind of don't take that cup of tea, but that family's going to go like, mm-hmm. you're not taking my tea. Right. So mm-hmm. culturally, again, speaking only to what I know, 
even even though I'm an American Ukrainian, I will never go to somebody's house without cookies I baked. I will never go mm. if somebody comes to my house. I got that kettle on. It is never that you come to my house because that's maintained with me, and it's a huge part of who I am as a Ukrainian American or Ukrainian Canadian. Double that by somebody who's been doing mm -hmm. that their whole lives. So please don't skip steps that make that person feel mm. like they are worthy of you being there. And and we talked uh, sort of before the interview about uh, about how uh, it, it's likely we're going to come uh -huh. home with pierogies. <laughs> yes, you are. Um, uh, and so we and so we, we have to be willing to sort of accept those things uh, every time, even you know, and 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 and, and regardless. And I know some there's been some. Yes. Which won't get into, but there's been some sort of ethical sort of code pieces that we sometimes that sometimes make that not possible. I think some of those have been gotten a little more flexible of late, yeah. but whatever. Um, should we also be doing the same? Like, should we do be doing what you're doing and baking some cookies and coming in and that sort of thing, or is that helpful, or is that sort of more because you're Ukrainian? You do. That? I think that I think that that's when I do like a lot of times, not only with my families that I work with, but just in general. That just. I mean, my gosh, in my culture, if you would go somewhere to a friend's house and not bring something, it would be like shock, <laughs> you know. But I think that in this situation is I understand. And I, you know, you and I've talked about this before is like there is these we won't talk about it, but lots of different codes. I think a lot of it is, is in the beginning, it's not that you have to come with something. It's just that you are willing to accept something. And I don't think that the the families are going to be asking you to you know, or what thinking that you're going to bring something, they're going to be in awe that you're coming right. all the time. That's a gift to them in its own, right? Yes. That you're coming right. week after right. week, like to them, that's like a shock. You see a doctor if you're like fingers yeah. chopped off most of the time and you, you know what I mean? Yes. So this is unusual. I think it's going to be more in the acceptance when immediately you are met with, with that. Like when I lived in England, um, the minute I walked in the door and took my shoes off, there was a cup of tea handed to me. You know, everybody knows the, the English tradition, having a cuppa, right? I, sure. If I would have said, sure. like, take yeah. your cup of tea out of here, I don't know where how far through that door yeah. I would have got. Now, double Fair that enough. by 10 yeah. by yeah. people who came with nothing in their backpacks, nothing to give you but a cup of tea. Imagine going, no, thank you. They're going to go, uh, so mm -hmm. you are not accepted. You know what I mean? You're not going from mm -hmm. a level playing field. That's already making that mm -hmm. person feel like, you're. are you doing me a favor? Mm -hmm. Right? And that kind of stuff is something that we have to put to the forefront in our field because by them giving me a cup of tea doesn't mean that I'm going to do any better for them than I do for anybody else. It's just allowing me mm -hmm. to put them in a place of comfort, to put them in a place of trust, and to, to be like that person goes, whew, okay, now we can start this dialogue, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, accepting that tea is accepting them, so. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. way of putting it. Uh, I think this has been really good. Is there, is there anything that maybe I haven't asked that you, that, that you, you just, any other information that you think would be good no, to share No, I think, you know what, and I, I thanks so much for doing this, Ben. It means a lot to me as, as somebody um, from a Ukrainian background. Obviously, I'm so overwhelmed by, you know, the people I've talked to, et cetera. I'm also very um, aware that we are not the first culture that has been misplaced and displaced. And you know what I mean? And so I can only speak to what I know. I'm very humbled by the fact that many, many cultures, I work with many Syrian families and have been humbled by working with yes. them. Like I said, I'm coming from a place of what I know. Um, and I think that we've touched upon the fact is that I think the big part is humility. And I think the big part is trust mm. and patience. 
And recognizing start from the simplest form and work your way up. Remember that what we want to give may not be what people need. So reading people, I think, is going to be really important. And I'm hoping, um, Ben, that maybe we can continue to have this dialogue or you and I can continue talking once we hear more and maybe resume this in a couple of months and see where we're at. This will be kind of cool Cool to I'd see, love that. Cool to see where awesome. we're at. But for yeah. now, I'm just super appreciative that you took the time to meet with me. Absolutely. Well, I've been happy to have you, and I look forward to doing it again soon. Sounds good. Thanks again, Bob. All right. Take care. Thank you.